This pre-recorded show furnished by Matthew Mattern. You're listening to Unite and Heal America on KBC 790. This is Matt Mattern, your host, and uh, our guest today, Michael Schellenberger. Uh, Michael is an author and uh, has done a lot in the environmental field, and really excited to have you as a guest, Michael, and uh, to uh, share a lot of the work that you've been doing uh, in the environmental movement uh, for quite some time. And uh, thank you and welcome uh, to the show. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Well, Michael, uh, tell us a little bit about uh, how you got uh, in the environmental movement to start with and what were the things that motivated you to work uh, in this field? Sure. So I've been a environmental and progressive activist for really my entire adult life. Ever since I was a teenager, I've been involved in various causes, saving the red, saving the redwoods, saving the rainforests, uh, trying to improve factory conditions among Nike uh, workers in Indonesia. I was a big advocate for uh, renewables in the early 2000s. I came to see some of the limitations of renewables. I had some friends say, you should take a second look at nuclear power. I did. I overcame a bunch of my fears about nuclear energy and have become a big supporter of nuclear for the last decade. I've founded several organizations, including Environmental Progress, which is the organization that I run currently. We incubate leaders, ideas, and movements and are working on three different uh, grassroots movements, one on nuclear energy, one on conservation, and another on dealing with the drug death crisis that is the subject of my new book, San Francisco. I had a book that came out last year called Apocalypse Never, Why Environmental Alarmism Hurts Us All. And both books, I think, are warnings about some of the threats to civilization I see in terms of undermining the institutions and bases of our civilization. Neither book are easy to categorize as liberal or conservative. I've been a progressive all my life, but recently I've decided I no longer identify as progressive because of the problems that progressives have created in California. So I'm more of an independent thinker. Um, sometimes I'm called a moderate or heterodoxical, but I remain an activist in addition to being an author. Um, I'm writing books and write articles, not, be, not for my own self-aggrandizement. Uh, but really because I want to make the world a better place and my views have evolved, but my values have been pretty much the same in the sense of really wanting to see all humans lifted out of poverty, wanting to see cities be safe and flourishing places for entrepreneurs and for uh, citizens and families, and also uh, wanting to protect the natural environment. So I guess a little, hopefully that's a thumbnail sketch for you. Well, that's, that's a lot. And, uh, I guess one of the things that caught my eye when, uh, you know, learning a bit more about what you've done, the why the environmental uh, alarmism is hurting us all. And if you could kind of address that, because I think that's uh, something that uh, <clears throat> caught my eye and I'd like to hear more from you about that. Sure. So my views are that climate change is real. It's uh, created mostly by humans. It's something that we should worry about, something that we should do something about, but the reaction to it, particularly in recent years, has become so over the top and exaggerated that it's actually created harm. 
we've actually been doing a pretty good job dealing with climate change. You wouldn't know it from listening to a lot of rather hysterical climate activists, but the fact of the matter is the United States has reduced its carbon emissions 22% below 2005 levels, mostly thanks to fracking for natural gas, which has replaced coal. We would reduce carbon emissions a lot more if we use nuclear energy, but the people that are the most alarmist about climate change are also the people that are most adamantly opposed to the two technologies that have done the most to reduce air pollution and carbon emissions, which are natural gas and nuclear. I'm really concerned as the father of an adolescent about the impact that the alarmism has on kids. There's a lot of teenagers that think they're not going to live long enough to have kids. That's ridiculous. There's every reason to think that the future is going to be brighter than the past. Uh, People are going to live longer. We suffer with too much food. Uh, We produce more and more food every year. It's not a problem. The problem is managing how much food we eat. Uh, We're actually turning more of the Earth's land surface over to nature, grasslands and forests, which is habitat for endangered species. There's every reason to think we should have an increase in biodiversity over the next 50 to 100 years. So most environmental trends are going in the right direction, but you wouldn't know it from reading the news or listening to climate activists. The the most important uh, issues are all manageable through continued technological change. So my concern is that I think climate change has become such a totalizing, even totalitarian discourse that it's actually starting to infringe on prosperity and undermine environmental goals, particularly with the war on nuclear power, but also the war on natural gas. And I'm particularly concerned by the impact on poor countries since so much of what environmental activists are trying to do is to prevent poor countries from getting access to cheap and reliable energy. So I wrote Apocalypse Never for a number of different reasons, but certainly defending the right of poor countries to develop and pushing back against what is just clearly hysterical exaggeration um, were two of the big reasons. Well, one of the things that uh, we hear a lot about is that uh, if we don't resolve the situation by 2030 um, and reduce our emissions dramatically by that point in time, that... uh, it's it's going to be kind of too late. So what's your response to that uh, line of thinking? Well, you know, I was first told that we had to act within 10 years or it'd be too late in 1987 when I was a sophomore in high school. Uh, the Associated Press ran an article based on United Nations reports saying that we had just 10 years to act before the world would end. So this is just a public relations uh, tactic. It's grossly misleading. We are reducing carbon emissions right now by moving from coal to natural gas. We're probably going to see emissions go up at the end of this year because of a bump from COVID, but there's every reason to think that carbon emissions have peaked and are declining in rich countries. We know they are. They, they peaked and declined, started declining in Europe in the 1970s. Uh, poor countries are still developing, so their emissions are going to go up, continue to go up a bit more. But really, we should see global emissions peak within the next 10 years. Uh, Buried in the recent United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change report was some good news, which is that we we do not see coal coming back. Coal is twice as dirty from a climate perspective as natural gas. The most extreme climate scenarios are based on a sextupling of of coal use over the next uh, half century. That's simply not going to happen because we're in a transition towards gas. 
So again, the main obstacle is the people that claim to be the most worried about climate change. They're the ones that are trying to shut down nuclear plants and replace them with fossil fuels and renewables. If you really care about climate change, you should be advocating for nuclear energy. What about this uh, argument that uh, because of us, because we're reaching uh, a certain percentage of parts per million of, of carbon dioxide in the, in the air, that uh, in the atmosphere that uh, we're kind of going to reach a tipping point. Is that an accurate statement or is that uh, not accurate? It's not accurate in the sense that the best way to think of climate change is as a gradual incremental problem. All else being equal, we wouldn't want to change the temperature of the planet at all because we've created a civilization, farms, cities, natural protected areas around a particular temperatures. But if we had to see a temperature change, we'd rather see it become warmer than cooler since more people die from cold than heat every year. And we can protect against heat deaths from with air conditioning and which requires cheap energy. But the tipping points is not scientific. It's, it does not, the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change does not include tipping points in its scenarios. And the reason is, is because it's based on a set of basically speculative uh, connections. I interviewed one of the lead scientists that did a big tipping points paper, again, not included in the peer-reviewed scientific literature, but a kind of speculative opinion piece. The problem is, is that we don't understand a lot of these connections. The other issue is that if there are tipping points in the global system, they may not have anything to do with our own contribution to climate change. I first became alarmed about climate change around the fears that the Gulf Stream was going to shut down. Best available science shows that it may very well be uh, slowing down the Gulf Stream, which brings uh, warmer uh, water and temperatures from the southern hemisphere to the northern hemisphere. But it may not have anything to do with climate change, and it's occurring over hundreds of years. So when you really look at these tipping points, these apocalyptic scenarios, you'll discover things like melting ice sheets are things that you worry about over a 700-year to 1,200-year period. It's very hard to really manage risks that are 50 years away, much less 500 years away. So the bottom line on all of the risks of catastrophe, and there's much better mechanisms for thinking about catastrophe from like an asteroid or a volcano, is just that we should be prepared for the worst. Um, and that means having a strong national security, strong infrastructure that can be prepared for various disasters, whether it's an influenza virus or a coronavirus, as we've seen, or an asteroid or a supervolcano or some sort of um, unforeseeable event, we should be prepared. But that, that means actually being prepared for a wide variety of potential disasters, not just climate change. Well, you've been listening to uh, Unite and Heal America on KBC. My guest, uh, Michael Schellenberger. Uh, we'll be back in just one minute. Uh, Michael's talking with us about environmental issues and uh, his views about why environmental alarmism has uh, hurt all of us. Uh, we'll be back in just one minute. This is KBC 790 with your host, Matt Matter. This is Unite and Heal America on KBC 790. This is Matt Matter, your host, and I've got Michael Schellenberger. Uh, Michael is an author and uh, leads some environmental 
organizations. And uh, Michael, again, uh, something you talked about before the break was natural gas. And, and uh, there's certainly some arguments back and forth as to whether that's a good power source going forward in the future. And, and you talked about fracking. And I know there's a concern regarding methane being released during the process of, uh, of uh, getting natural gas. Um, so what's, what's your thinking on that? And methane is even more potent um, greenhouse gas than, than even CO2. And, and what can we do to um, minimize that or reduce it? Or should we try to uh, get away from using natural gas so that we don't have methane escaping into the atmosphere? Yeah, I mean, so my basic view is that there's a hierarchy of energy and that what we're trying to do for both people and the environment is move from more energy dilute fuels to more energy dense fuels. So there's a basic progression. You can move from wood to coal. You get twice as much energy out of the same volume of material from wood when you go to coal. When you go from coal to petroleum and then to natural gas, you reduce the carbon emissions by half. You increase the energy intensity significantly. And then if you eventually move from natural gas to nuclear, you eliminate all air and water pollution because uh, nuclear power plants don't produce pollution. So generally, that's the direction you want to go. Um, so the move from coal to natural gas has been responsible for the reduction of carbon emissions in the United States by 22% over the last 15 years. It's mostly a beneficial process. Um, some methane gas does leak from when you expand natural gas production. There's been some debates around this in the scientific literature, but basically the amount of gas that leaks does not outweigh the benefits of reducing the carbon when you replace coal with natural gas. And the way to think of it is that, yeah, methane is definitely a more potent greenhouse gas than carbon emissions, but it's also more short-lived. It only it breaks down after a few decades, whereas carbon emissions are in the uh, atmosphere for hundreds of years. And so we're really concerned about high levels of warming in the future from the accumulation of carbon dioxide. So, so most reputable analysts, when they look at this, they support transitioning from coal to natural gas. Even people that I disagree with on a number of issues, we tend to all agree on the, on the benefits of moving from coal to natural gas. That being said, I don't I don't support moving from nuclear to natural gas because I think nuclear is the cleanest way that we have of making electricity. And so I it may seem paradoxical, but I but it's actually quite consistent. I advocate for moving from coal to natural gas, but I oppose moving from nuclear to natural gas. Again, these fuels have relative benefits and they have to be understood in the context of what the alternatives are. Well, I guess uh, that's something that is. Uh is hotly debated whether nuclear is one of the uh, ways to get to uh, a net zero uh, emission world. And, and uh, I know Bill Gates is strongly behind nuclear as being part of the mix. And I guess I, one of the things that we have to, would have to deal with is the political part of the equation and, and that uh, we haven't built uh, very many. I think uh, I've read one nuclear plant since 1996 in the United States. So we're not kind of in the process of uh, rolling out nuclear facilities. Uh, where where do you think we're headed 
And uh, where's the Biden administration coming down on on this issue? Yeah, I mean, it's as with nuclear, all things are two steps forward, one step back. You know, we have um, almost 100 nuclear reactors, about 60 nuclear power plant sites. That's a sufficient number of nuclear plant sites to really add, you could add reactors to them and power the whole country. Um, reactors, the great thing about nuclear is you can just add more reactors to an existing power plant site. You can have eight nuclear reactors at an existing power plant site. Today, we have one or two at an existing site. So it's all sited and ready to go. There's been a lot of enthusiasm for pretty radical technological change. I tend to be skeptical of radical technological change, particularly on capital intensive and slow to turn over machinery like nuclear plants. I think of it this way, you know, one day we're going to have hydrogen powered jet planes that can fly us from Los Angeles to Australia in an hour. Uh, They'll basically be supersonic uh, spacecraft almost. That day will come. I don't really doubt it. But we're nowhere near that day now. That's 100 or 200 years away. That's my view of the, the futuristic reactors that people want to build, including the very small ones. We have very good technology now, just like we have very good jet plane technology. We should continue to build it and expand it. The Biden, the Biden administration, like all Democrats, are divided between some Democrats that want to do 100% renewables, which most experts think is grossly um, unrealistic and a bad idea. You know, you can't rely on weather-dependent energy because the sun doesn't always shine and the wind doesn't always blow, and batteries are really expensive and 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 material-intensive and not very good for the environment. Bluntly. So nuclear is a big part of this, and the Biden administration has been pretty weak in general. They've been a little bit better, perhaps, than past Democratic administrations, but not much. So nuclear is, you know, the Cinderella of energy technologies. It's the most beautiful of them all um, when you look at it, when you really look at it. But it's it's been so demonized because of the past associations with nuclear weapons and because of really a kind of negative, anti-humanistic, anti-energy uh, view among environmentalists who just really have always thought that more energy meant more people and more development, and they're against that. And, and nuclear had just sort of negative associations that are quickly disappearing for younger people. I mean, you talk to people in their 20s or 30s, they really don't get what the hang-up is among baby boomers around nuclear power. So some of that's fading, but not as quickly as we would have liked. So, um, but I will say, you know, Americans are mostly shielded from it, but the energy prices are going up very significantly in the rest of the world, particularly in Europe and Asia. And so I just did a column today about how France, Britain, uh, Japan, and other major countries are actually turning back towards nuclear power because natural gas um, has become so expensive, particularly as we've dealt with supply chain bottlenecks. Uh, relating to the the economic uh, return after COVID. Well, I guess uh, a couple of things that come up in in that uh, in response to that. Uh, one is: Are there many or any uh, of these sixty nuclear uh, sites in the U.S. that are currently uh, looking to expand to, to get up to eight reactors at any site? Or are we still kind of 
stuck in neutral or uh, going in reverse by decommissioning these sites and reactors? Mostly we're in neutral or reverse. Uh, we did have some good news. Illinois legislature just voted to protect two nuclear plants for reactors that were at risk of closure. They did keep them operating. But yeah, I mean, the you know, we're blessed and cursed in the United States. We have abundant natural gas thanks to fracking, which again, I'm in favor of when it's replacing coal and opposed to when it's replacing nuclear. But that's meant very cheap um, electricity from uh, from natural gas, which is not burdened with the overregulation that nuclear plants are burdened with. So at this point, we don't have the big renaissance of nuclear that we want. However, we are creating a grassroots movement in support of nuclear, and it's been making a lot of headway. I mean, just the conversation that is occurring on nuclear power today versus 10 years ago when I changed my mind about the technology, it's like night and day. I mean, now it's hard to find people on social media like Twitter who will say that they care about climate change and, and also say that they oppose nuclear power. It's become sort of uh, politically uh, unviable for people to be anti-nuclear, but it's, it takes a while. And so, you know, nuclear is a long game. It's a slow moving technology. I think we'll get there, uh, but it's definitely not happening right now. Well, I could say just uh, personally, I, I could, you know, as a child of the 70s and Three Mile Island and, and now more recently what happened in Fukushima, uh, there is the sense that, hey, human error occurs and humans being who they are, there is a concern that uh, we will screw things up. And with nuclear mistakes, they're, they're very long lasting, hundreds of thousands of years. So one can understand why there's some reticence in employing nuclear power. I, I, I would say, though, the, the inverse of that uh, equation is that if you're serious about the environmental uh, you know, disaster that may be coming, we don't have time to kind of quibble. Uh, something pretty radical is required, and nuclear does fit the bill as far as uh, having zero emissions. So it is it is something that probably should be in the mix, even though it isn't a perfect technology. It's certainly far from uh, far better than most every other option that we have available to us. And and uh, we're going to go into a break, but I'd like you to discuss with the listeners after we get back some of the downsides of some of the renewables vis-a-vis uh, nuclear and and why you you are in favor of nuclear uh, as compared to wind and solar. So uh, you've been listening to KBC 790. This is Unite and Heal America with Matt Matter, my guest uh, Michael Schellenberger. We'll be back in just one minute. As you may know, your host, Matt Mattern of Unite and Heal America, is also the founder of Mattern Law Group. Their team of experienced employment, consumer, and environmental attorneys are dedicated to leveling the playing field by giving everyone access to the highest quality legal representation. Contact 844-MLG-FOR-YOU. That's 844-MLG-FOR-YOU or 844-654-4968. 844-654-4968. This is Unite and Heal America on KBC 790. This is Matt Mattern. 
Uh, guest today, Michael Schellenberger. Uh, Michael was named uh, Heroes of the Environment by Time Magazine in 2008. Also got the Green Book Award. So uh, certainly has bona fides in the environmental field. Yet, uh, Michael, you're pro-nuclear. Tell us why uh, you think nuclear power is in any way better than renewables such as wind and solar. Well, sure. I mean, like a lot of Americans, I was anti-nuclear. I was raised in the 80s. Uh, we, as a you know, 12-year-old, uh, watched a really terrifying made-for-TV movie about nuclear war, which was a big subject in the early 80s. Chernobyl happened when I was 15. So I was definitely anti-nuclear. I was very pro-renewables as an alternative to nuclear. And I only changed my mind on the technology because I was working on advocating for renewables and there was a lot of grassroots opposition to renewable energy projects, not just in California, but also around the United States. You know, people don't realize, but it takes 300 times more land to generate the same amount of electricity from a solar farm as a wind farm. And so there's huge land use impacts, including on endangered species. So what's great about nuclear is that the, an amount of uranium fuel, the size of a Coke can, produces enough energy to power your entire life including all your jet travel, all of the really high energy activities that you engage in. And, by, and when it comes out as waste, it's the same you know, metal fuel rods, that same amount. So you have a tiny amount of waste. There is no pollution. Pollution is waste discharged into the natural environment. There is no pollution from nuclear power plants. People worry about the accidents. The accidents are remarkably benign in terms of their impact. They're very scary because people think, as I did, that nuclear plants are something like nuclear weapons, and that if there's a meltdown, it's like a bomb going off. It's not. Uh, you have to worry about the radi radi radiant material that escapes the plants. But nobody died from, from Three Mile Island. Nobody died from Fukushima. Chernobyl was the worst accident. About 50 people died after putting out the fire, either immediately after or a few months after. And the best available science suggests that a total of 200 people will eventually die from that accident over like an 80-year period. Well, you put that into comparison to other energy technologies, and there it really isn't one. Um, ordinary power plants, which produce fossil fuel power plants, produce air pollution that kills 6 million people a year. Uh, burning wood and dung in poor countries kills or shortens the lives, I should say, of one to two million people a year. The land use impacts are just gigantic of big solar and wind farms. Uh, we've seen the desert tortoise, the endangered desert tortoise, uh, really be negatively impacted. There's uh, species of bats. There's golden eagles, bald eagles, whooping cranes. Many bird species are threatened by wind turbines, which are spinning blades in the airshed of, of insects and animals. So when you look at what's a scalable technology to deal with things like climate change or just to reduce air pollution, there's only nuclear. Hydroelectric dams do a pretty good job in the countries that have them, but a lot of countries have already dammed up all their rivers, mostly in the developed world. So when you look at what's scalable, what can actually replace baseload fossil fuels, it's only nuclear. And so nuclear, I think, has a really special role to play. You know, I, I think even if you don't like it, you can think of it as a cursed blessing or a blessed curse in the sense that once the scientists figured out how to split the atom, um, there was no going back. In other words, once you know how to split the atom, then the knowledge of how to create nuclear weapons, but also nuclear energy 
Yeah, you can't get rid of it, even if you try to kill all the nuclear physicists in the world. But we knew political scientists have been pointing out since World War II that even if two countries got rid of nuclear weapons and then they went to war with each other, the first thing they would do is try to reconstruct their weapons. And so we can't get rid of the technology as much as some people might want to. And so I think it's incumbent upon us to to do to make the best of it. It's an incredibly powerful technology. I do think it's the most dangerous technology because it's the only way you can make weapons so powerful that you could truly wipe out civilization. But I do think that humans are up for it. We manage a lot of dangerous things in the world, uh, including viruses. <laughs> and we sometimes things go wrong, but I do think we're capable of managing this technology. Um, you know, people imagine uh, sometimes nuclear acting like a virus or something as though, you know, if it were misused, then it would it would blow up the world instantly or something. But that's not really accurate either. Mostly nuclear weapons have created peace everywhere they've gone in the form of deterrence. And it makes some people uncomfortable. But that's the truth of the matter is that, you know, nuclear weapons are create peace wherever they go. So it's really just not the technology is just not what people thought it was. There was a lot of efforts by the radical left in particular in the 1950s and 60s to sort of paint nuclear as a threat to civilization. But that, those, those kind of claims were, had other motivations behind them. They were made by people that really were out to change Western civilization more broadly. So I think nuclear is one of those things where even if you're uncomfortable with it, it is a, something that we need to deal with and we should really make the best of it. Well, I guess the question is, you know, in terms of the lead time that it takes to to build a nuclear power plant and, and get one online, which my understanding in the U.S. is anywhere from 10 to 20 years, that uh, there's a that uh, the advantage of wind and solar is those can those technologies can be rolled out a lot more quickly than um, than nuclear. So what's what's your proposal there? Should we sit on uh, wind and solar and uh, wait for nuclear or um, keep doing wind and solar? Yeah, I mean, it's it's actually the case that nuclear is the fastest. So, yes, it takes longer to build a nuclear power plant than it does to put solar panels on your roof. But after you put solar panels on your roof, you don't even have enough electricity for your household. You build a nuclear plant and that's enough power for three to six million households. Um, we've seen look at France and Germany. You know, France generates uh, generates electricity that produces one tenth of the carbon emissions as German electricity at almost half the price. The French scaled up nuclear and they get over 85 percent of their electricity from zero emission sources. Uh, Germany gets less than half of that amount from zero emission sources. And the difference is that Germany has been trying to do it with renewables and phasing out nuclear while, while France is mostly nuclear. So nuclear is kind of what you intuitively think it is. It, it's, it's really powerful. It produces a lot of energy. Um, we can build nuclear power plants as fast as we're comfortable doing. You know, it's the, the, but, the realistically, but realistically, how fast, Given our political processes, uh, can we can we build a nuclear power plant with the current existing regulations? You know, not in a uh, airy fairy world of uh, you know wiping out all regulations. That that's not the world we live in. Live in. Let's live in the world we live in and say how fast can we do it? Yeah, I mean, um, 
So what we know, is, so, I mean, if I had to spitball it, just give you a rant, just kind of give you a broad answer, I'd say 10 years to build a nuclear plant. Uh, the time goes down when you build more reactors. So we know this everywhere in the world, this, the workers who make the first reactor and turbine and steam generator, um, they can build the second one much faster, 10 to 20 percent uh, faster, and then it just keeps getting faster from there. In South Korea, they actually were building nuclear plants faster than coal plants. So it's not that there's something so special about the technology that you can't build it quickly. It's just a matter of practice. So it does matter, though, how much regulation you have. So I'll give you an example. They were we were in the midst of planning to build these two reactors in Georgia. And then after 9-11 happened, somebody said a bunch of people said, well, we really need to make it so that it's that you if you fly a plane into it, then nothing will happen to the reactor. Well, is that really necessary? I don't think so, because we know that we know that jet planes, when they crash into cement, uh, cement uh, containment buildings, the jet planes fall apart. It's not like flying it into a, a glass building like the Twin Towers. So I can give you a general answer, but the issue of how much regulatory burden there is directly affects how long it takes to build a plant. Well, yeah, of course, uh, that is part of the equation. And, and we certainly want to keep, uh, keep ourselves safe by building safe nuclear power plants. That's certainly one of those uh, technologies that we need as many controls on as possible to make sure that they these plants are as safe as possible. Uh, so you don't want to cut too many corners. And, and from what I understand, it's 10 years to build a plant in Europe. So it's, it's not as if the world standard is uh, substantially less than 10 years, to, to my knowledge. I mean, maybe South Korea was churning them out faster um, than, yeah. than that. But uh, so it, it, that, that does lead us to the conclusion that I always meet that we have to probably continue to do solar and wind here in the States uh, simultaneously with building more nuclear. Um, are you against uh, building out solar and wind at this point in time? I am mostly. We have to probably keep the answer on this one a little short and then we'll come back to it after the break, but uh, uh, maybe give us your short answer and then we'll, we'll return to this question. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm I have solar panels in our backyard, so that's fine. I'm opposed to big industrial solar and wind projects because they're having negative impacts on wildlife. You know, they're pulling baby desert tortoises out of their burrows in California right now, putting them on the back of pickup trucks, putting them in pens where most of them die. This is a critically threatened species. You know, we have bald eagles threatened, whooping cranes threatened by industrial wind projects. The North Atlantic right whale is threatened by North Atla by Atlantic. Uh, wind en energy industry. So these are not minor impacts that we're encountering. And these are often in places where, like in California, we have so much solar now that we have to pay neighboring states to take the excess solar from us. So it's not a trivial matter of, of just um, the more renewables better. The more renewables you add, the more expensive your electricity is and the bigger the environmental impacts. So... Uh... You're listening to Unite and Heal America on KBC 790. This is Matt Matter, and uh, our guest, Michael Schellenberger, will be back in just one minute.
You're listening to Unite and Heal America on KBC 790. This is Matt Matter, your host, and our guest again, Michael Schellenberger. Uh, Michael wanted to kind of switch gears and, and talk about uh, the technology of electric cars and hydrogen cars and the hydrogen economy versus kind of the battery powered um, uh, economy that uh, is is used <laughs> for electric cars and the like. Uh, where do you come down on on this as far as what do you think we should be investing more into the hydrogen powered economy or uh, a battery powered economy yeah i mean i'm I'm pretty skeptical of that we're going to move all of our petroleum powered transportation sector to lithium batteries for a variety of reasons. Um, the first is just that it actually increases the weight to power ratio. Generally, what we've seen is rising energy intensity of vehicles, meaning greater power to weight over time, not more heavy vehicles. And so, and that's a general trend across various products in the economy is that we see declining material intensity or, or what more technically you might call dematerialization. Most famous example of this, of course, is the cell phone or the iPhone, which basically replaces all sorts of other products. But we see it with everything um, in our society where things become lighter and less material intensive. We use more energy, but we use less natural resource and material throughput just for straight economic reasons. But that has strong environmental benefits. So the alternative path to a transportation sector that doesn't rely on fossil fuels would be a hydrogen gas powered um, vehicles that's been talked about for a long time. We have those vehicles. They're more expensive than today's vehicles. But the advantage is that they can go much farther, they are much lighter, and therefore you continue that trend towards less materials. You're not moving heavy amounts of lithium from South America or Central Asia to different parts of the world, all of which seems like the wrong direction in terms of from an environmental but also an economic point of view. And then the other advantage of hydrogen gas is that over time you can transition more easily from natural gas to hydrogen gas for not just transportation, but heating and cooking. So the original vision in the 50s and 60s for an ecological society was one that was powered by nuclear plants. The nuclear plants would make hydrogen from water. Obviously, you can hydrogen gas H2 from H2O. You can also make it from natural gas or methane, which is CH4. Is split, take the carbon atom off and split the two, uh, the four hydrogen atoms into H2. So I tend to be a supporter of that hydrogen, that hydrogen future, but it's, um, it's complex and I, it's not something that I feel particularly uh, strongly about and, and actually left it out of my book, Apocalypse Never, because I felt like those things would get shaken out. I, I don't, I'm not a big supporter of just heavy subsidies for electric cars because. They tend to be pretty regressive, paying my affluent neighbors here in the Berkeley Hills to own Teslas uh, is, I don't think, a great strategy. Well, I, uh, as a former Tesla owner, I, I um, then switched to hydrogen cars. The last two cars huh. I had is hmm. hydrogen cars. So hmm. I'm kind of a hydrogen proponent. I will put that out there for truth and advertising. Uh, but I recognize there are, there are benefits for each technology and some downsides. But I, what I like about hydrogen is that it is, it is both uh, kind of 
a clean fuel. And as you said, you don't have to have the mining that goes on for lithium batteries, which is pretty substantial. And, and if we think about it, if we went to a complete um, electric powered fleet uh, across the world, that would be maybe a billion cars with lithium powered batteries. Where, where are we going to dispose of a billion right. batteries uh, and then mine up uh, the material for another billion plus batteries? And there's some serious problems in going in that direction. So, um, yeah, I agree. I wanted to I wanted to switch gears yet again to to something you had brought up earlier, which uh, you know I just can't help but uh, talk about, which is your um, your analysis regarding the drug deaths in San Francisco and what's happening there, and and uh, what what you think the failure in policy is and how it could be changed. Sure. So, you know, a lot of people know we're in the midst of two terrible drug epidemics. They're actually the worst in world history. Nothing compares to it. We have a methamphetamine epidemic we never dealt with. We have an opioid crisis that started with the overprescription of, of, of opioid pharmaceuticals. Many people then switched to heroin and now people are dying from fentanyl. 17,000 people died from drug overdoses and poisonings in the year 2000. 93,000 people died last year. Almost three times more people than died from car accidents. About five times more people than died from homicides during a normal year. This should be the number one issue in America, in my view. It's not just homeless people. There's certainly a lot of homeless people are dying. But, you know, kids that are, you know, suffering from anxiety and depression, quite understandably, um, were experimenting with pills. Some of them ended up taking pills that were contaminated with fentanyl and they died. Their parents found them in their bedrooms. This is ongoing. Other times we see actors like Michael Williams, but we also saw Prince and Tom Petty die from fentanyl. Um, people just dying absolutely unnecessarily. I think we need a whole of society effort to deal with this problem. We need universal psychiatric care. We need to take stronger action to shut down the open air drug dealing, which plagues many major cities in America. Generally, I just think progressives went too far with compassion. You know, the Beatles were wrong. Love is not all you need. You also need discipline and strictness. There need to be consequences for behavior. So I wrote my new book, San Francisco, Why Progressives Ruin Cities, because I wanted to draw attention to this problem and point out that there's a lot of liberal cities in the world, including Amsterdam, where marijuana is decriminalized, prostitution is decriminalized, that don't have open air drug scenes or what we call homeless encampments, much less tens of thousands of people dying from drugs every year. So there is a way to there's a third way between mass incarceration and mass homelessness. It's much more similar to what they do in Amsterdam and other European cities than what we do in California. Well, how is it uh, that much different? I know they uh, had a heroin problem in Portugal, and I believe they in some way legalized it. And they uh, found that that seemed to help because people they dealt with it as a public health problem as opposed to a criminal problem. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's do here or is that uh... that's not really you know there's a lot of misinformation about portugal in particular but basically portugal netherlands and europe germany france they all do the same thing they do not allow people to use drugs publicly if you use drugs publicly you're arrested um yes you may you you know you're decriminalized in the sense that if you are arrested for using drugs publicly 
and you have below the amount that would trigger basically felony prosecution, um, but you're not let off the hook, you're brought in front of something called a commission for the dissuasion of addiction, which includes law enforcement, psychologists or psychiatrists, and your family members. So they stage an intervention. The government stages an intervention to deal with your drug problem in Portugal. So um, nobody does what we do here, which is allowing people to camp in public, use drugs in public, suffer their addiction in public. It's just uh, completely bizarre and, and uncivilized. So every civilized country offers addiction care and psychiatric care, and they use some amount of coercion for people that are breaking the law in other ways publicly uh, for reasons related to their addictions. Well, what about uh, our our just our housing problem here? My understanding is that we're we just have a housing shortage in part of uh, approximately three million units in California alone because of probably building restrictions in in large measure. Uh, is that the way to to resolve our homelessness problem? Is just allow uh, more building to be done of multifamily housing, which would then hopefully reduce the cost of housing for people who are in the lower economic spectrum. I mean, we need more housing, but it's not the reason that people are on. It's not the reason that addicts are on the street. I mean, the basic picture for the people on the street is that they became addicted to hard drugs. Couch, they, they quit their jobs to dedicate their full time to their addictions. They couch surfed. They often stole money or borrowed money from friends and family until they were cut off from friends and family. And then they maintain their addiction by living on the street. I found zero people living on the street who were not suffering from mental illness or addiction. If you are priced out of your rent, you do not go and pitch a tent in the dirtiest and most dangerous neighborhoods in the country. You move out of state like hundreds of thousands of other Californians have. So we need more homeless shelters. The people that have opposed building sufficient homeless shelters are the homeless advocates themselves. But we also need drug treatment. We need it to be mandatory for people that break the law. We need proper psychiatric care. These are problems that simply we should have been dealing with in the 60s and 70s that we never dealt with. And then when these two big drug drug epidemics hit, that's what led the homeless problem to explode in California. I probably have to disagree with you a bit in that I've uh, worked with the homeless community here in L.A. And I, I certainly know of homeless people that were not necessarily uh, serious drug problems or uh, mental illness problems who did become homeless. Uh, but I do recognize that those are two major problems that uh, do plague the homeless community. So uh Unfortunately, we've kind of run out of time, but uh, I really appreciate uh, you being on the show, Michael. And uh, it's been a very lively discussion and uh, certainly let uh, the listeners know where they can find you and and find some of the uh, books that you've written. Thanks so much, Matthew. It was wonderful talking. What is uh, what's your website, Michael? Oh, environmentalprogress.org. And both books are available at Amazon.com, San Francisco, and Apocalypse Never. Okay, well, Michael, have a great afternoon, and thanks for being on the show. This is Matt Matter, Unite and Heal America, KVC 790, and uh, we'll be back next week.